listening to First Church Charlotte. If you have been around church much at all, you know that this Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem. I am taking you there today in the scripture, and I am... Uh, using this as a uh, set, as a theme for us to consider some deep truths that are, uh, are shown to us in this moment. I'm going to read Luke chapter number 19. Uh, we are going to read at verse number 37. My subject title today is simply a garment of praise. Let's read at Luke 19 verse 37. Then as Jesus was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Uh, They weren't looking for what have you done for me lately. They were considering everything God had already done for them. I think one of the one of the habits of a person who is a praiser, a worshiper, um, is not just to look for what God has done for them lately, but to think of all the wonderful things that God has done for them. I think that's fundamental to being a person of praise. They, in verse number 38, they begin to sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd, and they they ask actually made this this appeal um, in the kind of as uh, uh, how shall we say they're kind of shouting from the crowd, showing their disagreement. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, "I tell you that if these should keep silent." The stones would immediately, notice that word, the stones would immediately cry out. This, this moment in scripture um, is, there, there's some things to understand about it, and there's some things we will never understand about it. I've spent the last week thinking about this and reading various <clears throat> Uh, historians and various scholars and commentators and other pastors and preachers and teachers wanting to see the depth of it. And there's interesting things that come to light, but um, one of the interesting theological uh, debates is whether or not Jesus was speaking literally in the sense that these stones literally right here under our feet would literally develop a method of praise and worship and cry out. And uh, some people say, well, Jesus probably was referring to uh, the great acts that would be done by these stones because Jesus had promised that this temple would be destroyed, not one stone would stay upon the other. Maybe that was what he was referring to. Okay, maybe. I, I'm not much of a person who enjoys debate. Uh, the point is, I think, most interestingly seen here in this, this word, immediately. It is almost as though Jesus is saying, this is a moment of praise and worship. It is necessary in some manner for a larger fulfillment to be completed, and if these held their peace, these stones would immediately cry out because there is something larger at stake here. Well, uh, thinking about that, considering that in the manner of uh, the Bible nerds everywhere, 
led me to other things that were happening here, and and, and that is this. Jesus is entering into this city of peace, and he here will be offered as the Lamb of God truly for sinners slain. He literally becomes the perfect sacrifice offered before uh, the house of God, the people of God in this city as a covering for us all. Now, if you think about that, you immediately think of the tabernacle plan. And if you come into the tabernacle after you have passed uh, the altar of sacrifice and after you have passed the laver where the priests uh, ministering and serving the Lord have washed, uh, you find yourself at an altar of incense before you take the blood of covering into the holy place and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, you must pass an altar of incense. It is inappropriate for you to skip the altar altar of incense. You can't just make sacrifice, wash yourself, and then enter into the holy place. You have to join all the generations of people who have perceived the greatness of God, and you must worship. The altar of incense is a type of worship. Worship from the heart of a person who understands the greatness of God. Worship from the spirit of a created being who perceives the majesty, the glory of God, who will not simply rush into this holy place, but will prepare themselves in cleanliness and also prepare their hearts by reminding themselves of the greatness of God. Praise truly is a type of focus. It is a type of gathering ourselves. It is a type of, shall we say, inclining our hearts in a right manner. We are much more casual with God in this era of grace than those who have gone before us and lived under law uh, or even under uh, judges and, and even even in the the images of the Old Testament, we are much more casual. This is, this is not a mistake on our part. Uh, we are invited to perceive God as Father. That is why the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons and daughters of God. Our spirit cries, Abba, Father. We don't simply perceive him as judge. We perceive, perceive him as a loving father. The result of that, the good of that, is that we are invited to bring him into every element of our life, not simply formalize him as a distance. The potential error of that is when we are too casual with his greatness and treat him too ordinarily. And we perceive him simply as an idea or an ideal and not the great creator, God, with us. That's the risk of not seeing him as he truly is. The altar of incense is that place where praise is symbolically offered to the great God. And the priest bearing uh, the blood of covering does not, having done everything else, does not just rush into the holy place, but first they stand at an altar of incense and this sweet smelling aroma is offered symbolically of a reminder 
of how great God is. I want to be a person of praise. I don't ever want to get in the habit of seeing God as as some type of a divine right I possess and some error of thinking that he serves me rather than I serve him. I want to be a praiser. Praise is the manner in which you remind yourself of the difference of you and God. Excuse me. Praise is the manner in which you quit staring at your problems and you start staring at your provider. Praise is the manner in which you quit being impressed with all the things that have come against you and you remind yourself of the greatness of God. This moment of Jesus entering into the city of peace and the people praising him and it being necessary, not accidental. And if they had hushed themselves, the stones themselves would have immediately cried out. I like to think, and this is just my my viewing of uh, the beauty of these moments of scripture. This is not me trying to uh, establish systematic theology. It's just my love for the manner in which all the greatness of God is fulfilled in the gospels that are given to us. And uh, this moment of entering into the city of peace is symbolic to that altar of incense. We're not going to enter into this place of sacrifice and covering. We're not going to stand in the Shekinah glory without pausing here at a altar, a table of incense and reminding ourselves of how great God is. This moment entering the city of peace is like an altar of incense. I, I want to I point out to you, praise is ordained by God. It is not just an accidental thing. It is the right relationship of the created beings to their creator. Praise is not simply the fulfilling of a divine ego need. It is not simply God needing to hear you say who he is. God knows who he is. We sometimes forget who he is, but God knows who he he is. It's not about divine ego. It is about right relationship. Here is the reality. If I, as a created being who bear in my image the very being and essence of God, take my eyes off of him, I will begin to worship me. And this is the Lucifer path. You've heard me teach this uh, many times where this created being who is glorious in all his manner, a Lucifer, that highest being, if he takes his eyes off of the greatness of God, he will begin to worship the image of God within himself. And he will see God as a competitor, not as a creator. This is the story of heaven's rebellion. And we are only given the, the, the smallest images of this in the scripture, uh, even so we seek to derive a certain understanding from it. Uh, And if we understand correctly, Lucifer, that highest created being, that diamond flower of reflected light that must have been his, his image and his glory, he, the greatest of them all, was put in charge of leading worship, or at least directing the heavenly host 
uh, to keep their vision upon their creator, to keep their hearts focused upon their creator. He, that greatest one, he was responsible for that, but he fell in the manner of so many of us, and he turned his attention off of God, and he began to think about who he was and what he could do. If you praise yourself, it will give you a mistaken identity of what you are and what you can do. There is a danger in glorifying yourself and exalting yourself. It will make you think you can do things you can't do. It will even give you the arrogance to believe you can stand in the place of God and you will begin to direct toward God a challenge and even a criticism that you aren't qualified to offer. And like Job, the Lord will have to remind you, hey, where were you when I spoke this whole existence into being? You've taken your eyes off of me and turned them upon yourself. And so Lucifer, in the manner of all errant beings, distracted by the focus of praise and worship that should be directed toward God, being focused upon himself, will begin to think he can do things he really can't do. And here he is, and this there's a lesson in this. He decides that he can overthrow heaven with one-third of the beings, entities, angelic host. Now, this doesn't make sense. He's not as powerful as God. You would at least think he needs a majority. But once you get in the habit of lying to yourself about who you are, it always ends up with misunderstanding of who God is. Man, I wish I could preach here today. I wish there's somebody, a whole house full of you here, ready to shout on this message because I want to establish this. I want to found it, and I want to embed it in my heart first and then to everyone who will hear me today. The moment I misunderstand who I am will always end up with a misunderstanding of who God is. Praise is is a method of me keeping me right. Praise is how I keep me right. Praise is how I keep myself not simply in line with God, but aware of the difference between God and me. You see, God is not a man. Therefore, he has no need to lie. God is not limited in ability, so he has no need to manipulate. God is not bound in time. That's why he never gets in a hurry. That's why his timeline is different than my timeline because God's not a creature of time. I'm the creature of time. Praise is the manner in which I remind myself of who I am and remind myself more importantly of who God is. Somebody give me an amen all across the metro area. (laughs) Praise is ordained. And so... You see this moment of the entry of Christ into the city of David, and there praise flows from the hearts of the people. They are able to focus themselves. They are able to focus upon God and what God is doing. I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. This is a story about King David. King David is a young man of vast and truly amazing potential who is undiscovered. And he sits on a hillside keeping sheep because it is the least valuable job in his family. And in the manner of greatness, he uses his limitation to form his potential, not to limit him from his potential. 
And so on his hillside of obscurity, he turns his heart heavenward. And he develops within himself an attitude of praise and worship. Uh, This will have consequences. He gets God's attention. And when God is looking for a man to anoint king, he looks for a praiser. And it doesn't worry so much about the fact that a man, this young man, David, is on a hillside, has no formal training. You see, that's not the problem. The problem is can young David live his life with a sense of who he is and who God is? We aren't limited so much by our limits, we're limited by our illusions. Don't have time for that, preach that another time. And so David, here he is on this hillside. And the prophet comes to town, and in the presence of his brethren, Samuel anoints David and calls him to serve as a king to the children of Israel. And so this begins a transition of power in the house of Israel. Saul is intimidated by David. He doesn't know David's anointing, and so when the Israelites are fighting with the Philistines and Goliath comes out, the biggest source of fear in a generation becomes the biggest opportunity for a man who knows who God is. For everyone else, it's a source of fear. But for David, it's a source of opportunity. Why? Because he knows who God is. And he goes and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And he puts himself in the place of risk because he knows who God is. He's not focused on who he is. He's focused on who God is. I come at you Not with a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of Israel. This is the moment he is catapulted into national prominence. Saul, in the manner of insecure leaders everywhere, sees David as a threat. The problem was never David. The problem was Saul didn't know who God was. Saul's rebellion is because he doesn't know who God is and he doesn't keep himself in right relationship to who God is. And so everything is a threat. The threat he should have, should have saw as opportunity, Goliath, is actually not a threat. And the person he should have saw as anointed, he sees as a threat. Why? He doesn't understand who God is. Everything in your life gets topsy-turvy when you stop understanding who God is. Everything that should be victory for you turns into defeat because you have lost who God is. You have lost your focus. You have lost your foundations. And so Saul sees as a threat a young man he should have saw as anointed. And so this process of Saul trying to kill David begins and David... Uh, through various circumstances, has to flee for his life. And he's running just, just alone without any provisions, without a weapon. And he goes to this uh, small priestly uh, city of Nob, and there uh, he talks, uh, asks to see the, the high priest, and there um, he asks for three things. He asks first for a word from the Lord. Then he asks for bread, provision, and then he asks for a weapon. Three things he needs, but first he needs a word from the Lord. Uh, Because of uh, this, the priesthood receives David, and probably through their knowledge of him, through the prophet Samuel, who had anointed him, uh, they provide care to him. 
And he continues on, having been given everything he needs from God. I want to remind all of us, God will give all of us everything that we need. If you're facing financial dilemma right now, don't lose your faith. Be a praise giver, a praise maker. Remind yourself of who God is. He'll give you everything you need. And so David leaves there. Now, there was a a, a man there. Uh, fulfilling some religious duty of some type by the name of Doeg. He was a servant of Saul. Remember, Saul's trying to kill David. And later on, when Doeg goes back to the, uh, the court of, of Saul, Saul will, will throw this, this, this pity party of sorts. And um, you can read the story yourself um, in, in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter number 22. And uh, Saul hears that David and his men uh, had, uh, had, had been uh, discovered uh, in the, the forest of Harith. And uh, David, as Saul has a fit in front of his servants and he says, you Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give you anything, fields or vineyards? I'm reading in First uh, Samuel chapter 22. All of you have conspired against me. Uh, Saul's just like the devil. He thinks the only thing that motivates people is self-interest. That's what the devil thinks. And uh, I'm the one who will bless you and you're not even helping me. And all of you have conspired against me. And it's all this is your fault. And uh, no one has told me anything I needed to know. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me. Weak leadership always feels and sounds the same, doesn't it? Doeg speaks up and says, look, I saw David going to Nob to uh, Ameliac, the son of Ahitubah, and uh, he was there inquiring of the Lord. And so the king, Saul, summons this group of priests to his court, and there he hears their defense, he pronounces death upon them, and he turns to his guards, and he tells them that they should to kill. I'm reading in verse uh, 17. The king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. Now notice that the next passage, but the king, the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And so the king's looking for someone to do his dirty work. His own guards won't smite the priests, but Doeg, Doeg will do it. Why? Doeg's not even of the house of Israel. Doeg is an Edomite. This is the children of Esau who had been at war with the children of Israel generation after generation. And so uh, in spite of his pretense of devotion uh, earlier in uh, the previous chapter, Doeg has no problem of doing what the other guards will not do. And he takes a sword and he kills all the priests there, 85 priests. One of the sons of Emiliac uh, escapes. He probably had been in some manner uh, hidden, uh, told by his father who had been killed, uh, look, if this goes wrong, uh, you've got you've to go to David. Uh, somehow this had been set up. He escapes and uh, he tells David in verse 22 uh, what had happened. Uh, then the, the scripture literally uh, is, is, is read, let me see, in verse number 18, 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Now a linen ephod 
is a garment that the priest wore. Um, it, they, they wore it to signify their role. Now, it wasn't all the whole accoutrement of the priestly garb. It was kind of like served as an, under, an undergarment to the breastplate and all of that. That the, uh, the, the, uh, As you went closer up to the high priest, the, the, the garments would get more elaborate. But just kind of at its basics, the, the garb of a priest was an ephod. Not all of the priests served in all the positions. There were some priests who served outside, and they would wear the linen an ephod. When Elijah was given by his mother to serve in the house of the Lord, uh, the priest gave the little boy an ephod to wear. And uh, this image of service and ministry unto the Lord signified in the ephod. Now, let me continue with this story because I, 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 I want to show you a few things. Um, when this young man, you can read all of this in chapter 23, this young man who had escaped When he came to bring news to David that the priests had been killed, he brought with him an ephod. Verse 8, chapter 23. Now it happened when Abathar fled to David at Keilah that he went down with an ephod in his hand. He brought evidence that ephod may have been covered with the blood of slain priests, but he brought it and he showed it to David. This is David's first real uh, exposure to the ephod. Now, he knew about it, obviously, being a devout Jew, uh, but this is the first time one is placed in his hand. And this is an image. I I think it's beautiful. Now, David has always had an ephod in his heart. Even as a boy, he was someone to give praise and worship to God, but he had never been given an ephod before, at least if I understand the scripture correctly. And so now this terrible news is brought in the form of an ephod that's placed in his hand. David uh, uh, now has been given that which has always been in his heart, and he will change his, he will begin to include this as a sign of his devotion uh, to God. And so a a couple verses later when David is praying for direction on what to do uh, when the the city uh, was at risk and whether or not he should make his next choice, he calls to this young priest and he says, bring me an ephod. He says, verse number nine, he calls to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, oh Lord God of Israel. Now I'm going to show you, I want to show you that from this moment forward, even in other passages like uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, which that would be seven uh, chapters later, David says to Abathar the priest, uh, uh, this is whether or not he should pursue after Ziklag has been destroyed. He says, uh, verse number seven, bring me the ephod. And Abathar brings him an ephod. And David David inquires here in this passage, shall I pursue? What is he doing with the ephod? He may have just been holding it in his hands. He may have put it on his body. He may have held it in his arms. It doesn't matter. He has included a a garment of praise in his relationship with God. This will happen repeatedly until a great moment. Oh, I wish you were all here.
here because I want to preach this to you. I have to preach it again, again when we all come back. I want you to see this right now. This will all culminate in a day when David, through the blessings of God, through him being crowned king, not just anointed the king, him having victory in his struggle and his battle, his removing from the cave of Abdullam in the forest of Hereth, all of the fortresses and hideouts that he has been forced to live in. He now is back in a proper place of kingship and they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle of David. He is thinking of all the times that he's held that ephod in his hand and he's prayed, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. He's held that ephod every time that he thought his ministry, shall we, if you'll allow me to use that verb, had come to an end. Every time he thought that his family had been destroyed and a a, a ziklag had been ruined and he was in his desperate place, he didn't just go to the the presence of the Lord with a, I need this and I need that. He called to the high priest and he said, let me borrow your ephod. I have something I want to ask of the Lord and I want to do it with a garment of praise. I don't want to just show up with needs. I don't want to just show up with wishes. I want to put on a garment of praise and then I want to say, God, I have a need. God, would you make a way? God, would you heal me? Give me a garment of praise. And on this day, when they bring the Ark of the Covenant back, he doesn't just hold it in his hand. He doesn't just borrow borrow what is really given to the priest. He takes it to the next step. He puts on the garment of praise. And he gets out in front of the Ark of the Covenant that's coming back. And the Bible says David begins to dance like the children of like the house of the Levites who would formally include that in part of their worship. He began to act as though he were a priest. He has developed a relationship with not just God, but he has focused his understanding on who God is and who he is in relation to God. And when you get that right, the most natural thing in the world is for you to lift up your voice in praise. The most natural thing in the world is for you to lift up your heart in worship to God. David is a worshiper. He's not a perfect man, far from a perfect man. We know more of his sins than uh, many of the great men and women of the scripture. We know more of his errors. He's far from a perfect man. He doesn't even have all of his uh, spirituality uh, sorted out. He makes mistakes. He, he has lust problems. He gets caught up in error and vanity. But there's one thing that always brings him back into um, a place of mercy in God is that he knows who God is and he knows who he is. And praise reorients him uh, on his focus and establishes him upon his foundations. I want to share with you in closing here something that I teach uh, in our first steps class um, to all of our new, our new uh, people who are coming into the church who are wanting to get to know us and know who we are. And we, we spend some time with them in first steps. And I teach this in the very first lesson of first steps. And I try to explain why the church is the way it is, um, why it happens, why we, why we, 
why we sing the way we sing, why we use instruments. I, I don't want them just to accept it because, well, I think I'm going to go to church. I want them to see it in Scripture. I want you to understand that all what we do as praise has its origin in the heart and the desire of David to magnify the Lord. We lift our hands in praise because David, in Psalms 134 and 2, wrote, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. We sing with all of our hearts and we're zealous. Our worship team is zealous and they're energetic. It's not just about good delivery. It's not just about, that misses the point. Why do we do it? Why do we praise the way we praise? Well, David wrote Psalms 94 and 4, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and what? And sing praise. We use musical instruments up here because Samuel told about the tabernacle of David, 2 Samuel chapter number 6, verse number 5, and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments. That's why we use instruments. We clap in church. We even shout unto God in our services. Why? Well, because the psalmist wrote, oh, clap your hands, all ye people. This is Psalms 47 and 1. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. We even occasionally dance. Now, not everybody does it. Uh, we don't force people to do it, and we don't want to try to any, anyone to do it if it's not in their heart and in their personality to do it. Um, some people, if it's natural for you to dance, then you'll probably dance in one of our, our gatherings of some type, be it a... Uh, various types of gatherings we have. Um, but if it's in your heart and it's authentic to you, it's not pretense, in other words, we do it before the Lord. Why? Psalms 150 and 4, praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. And finally, we tell one another and we shout and sing and testify one to another of the goodness of God. Psalms 22, verse 22 I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. Praise focuses you upon God. It saves you from focusing upon yourself and therefore beginning to believe untrue things about what you actually are capable of. Praise focuses you on your need of God and reminds you that He's strong in your weakness. Praise directed at you makes you think you're strong when you're really weak. In fact, we have a word for praise directed at the creation rather than the Creator. That word is not praise, but it is vanity. Vanity is when you spend too much time considering yourself and not enough time considering your God. I want to invite you and your life to do what David did. King David, he had a heart for it, first of all. And then an opportunity came and God allowed him to move beyond the limits of simple kingship leadership and begin to edge into the realm of the priesthood. And David not simply has a heart for praise. David is given an ephod. 
And that ephod becomes part of his approach to God. A garment, particularly in the terms of a priest, is about an identity. You wear it as identity. David had always done it, even as a young man. But God now moves beyond receiving it from David as action and allows David to represent it, to idealize it as identity. If you will get praise here, it won't be long before your praise here will turn into testimony here. You won't simply have praise as action. You'll have praise as identity. And what is more, there'll be a moment when it feels natural for you to put that ephod on and dance before the Shekinah glory of God as God returns the kingdom to rightness, proper order. The anointing is in the tabernacle and the king is on his throne. This all happens when we get God back on the throne of our heart. You get God in the right place. And all of a sudden, everything else in your life will start to make sense. The ephod that God has given you is not just praise as action. It's praise as identity. And that's the moment you serve not just as a king, but as a priest. Because the ministry of David is the ministry of both kingship and priesthood. And here is the end of the matter. As a believer, washed in the blood of the Lamb, filled with the Spirit, given His name, spiritual adoption. Walking in victory, you are invited not just to dominion, but you are invited to anointing. Not just to leadership, but to ministry. You are invited in this kingdom of grace to a ministry of both the king and the priest. Celebrate the garment of praise in your life. Put it on as an identity. Lift your voice in the sanctuary. Lift your voice. We can't come to the sanctuary right now. I wish we could, but your house can become a place of sanctuary. It can become a safe place. It can become a place where the Shekinah glory of God is shown and felt in your heart and in your life. I want to pray for you right now, all across, all across the viewership, wherever you are. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging who you are. God, save us from vanity. We repent of vanity. We repent of our tendency to focus too much on us and what we wish and want. We stare too long in the mirrors until our mirrors become illusions and they lie to us. And they tell us things that we really, that aren't really true about us. Lord, help us to de- dash the mirrors of vanity and help us instead to lift our eyes to your glory. Help us to establish our focus upon you and to keep it there through praise and to keep it there through worship. Lord Jesus, help us as individuals having focused on you stand upon the foundations of what you have promised. Lord Jesus, we want to join with the host that on that day of the triumphal entry, they did not miss that moment. They would miss many moments, but on that day, they didn't miss their moment. They lifted up their voice and they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They did not miss their moment. They lifted their voice and they offered an altar of incense that was pleasing to you. 
before the blood of sacrifice was placed upon the mercy seat at Calvary. We join with them on this Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate you coming out of that tomb. But this Sunday, we're going to join with all the generations and stand at an altar of incense. And we're going to say there's none like you, oh God. You alone are glorious. You alone are magnificent. You alone are mighty. And with all of our heart, we love you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.